Welcome to the Next Level Human Podcast. As a human, you have a job to do. In fact, you have four jobs. To earn and manage money, to attain and maintain health and fitness, to build and sustain personal relationships, to find meaning and make a difference. None of these jobs are taught in school. And that is what this podcast is designed to do. To educate us all on living our most fulfilled lives through the mastery of these four jobs. I'm your host, Dr. Jade Tita, and I believe we are here living this life for three reasons and three reasons only. To learn, to teach, and to love. In this podcast, I will be learning, teaching, and loving right along with you. I'm grateful to have your company. Here's to our next level. Welcome to today's show, everybody. I am um, really, really excited about this one because, and it's probably my favorite podcast we've done or I've done up to this point because I got to talk to um, Dr. Herman Ponzer, who is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University. And I have been reading his work uh, probably since 2015, 2016. And he, and in 2017, he actually put out an article that really changed the way I looked at metabolism forever. And I think a lot of us uh, changed the way we looked at metabolism um, forever. And in this particular episode, I got to sit down with him. He was gracious enough to take time out of his laboratory work and sit and talk to me about all the mythology around metabolism, as well as the implications of his work um, as it relates uh, to metabolism. He's really done um, over two decades of research in this field. And one of the things I love about him is that he is an evolutionary anthropologist, meaning that all this talk about paleo man and what our ancestors ate and whether we should be eating raw or low carb or high carb or high fat or low fat or whatever it is. He's actually studied this from every angle. He's lived with hunter gatherer tribes. He's studied uh, the fossil record. He eats, lives and breathes this stuff. But not only that. He's also been steeped in the world of uh, metabolism and energy expenditure, which makes him a very, very unique voice in this field. It's rare that we get to have a real expert in the field, someone who, um, whose information I am using and people like me are using to actually pass on the information to you. And so this was really, really exciting uh, for me. We talk a lot about his new book, which is really where you want to go after listening to this episode. Uh, you want to go get his book and listen to it immediately. I'm actually on my second read. The book is called Burn. New research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, lose weight and stay healthy by Dr. Herman Ponzer, Ph.D. I am super excited for you to sit and listen to this conversation. It really was by far my favorite podcast so far. Sit back and enjoy Dr. Ponzer. All right, I'm really excited today because I have a special guest on Dr. Herman Ponzer, PhD. Um, I have to tell you, Dr. Ponzer, so when I first came across your work, 
I read, this must have been, what, 2017, uh, I read an article and I'm sitting there reading this article that you did and I'm just like, this, this can't be right. This, this <laughs> absolutely cannot be true. Right. And it blew, it blew my mind. And since then, I've been following your work. I pre-ordered your book, Burn, which by the way, I have right here for everybody. This is Dr. Ponzer's new book. I pre-ordered this as soon as I found out you wrote it because it's rare in my mind for a PhD Hmm. who eats, lives, breathes this thing to step into the world of sort of, um, well, what you call it, armchair engineer sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Popular science, maybe. Yeah. 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 And, you know, wading into this world is, I think, tough for a PhD like yourself because you're in you're in this other world. And now you're like, okay, now I need to translate this for people like Jade and people like the other people who don't do this for a living. So. New research, let me just read the subtitle because I think this is exactly what it is. New research blows the lid off how we really burn calories, lose weight, and stay healthy. So I'll start this question with the, the thing that blew me away. And it, it was basically this. We don't burn calories the way that we think we do in terms of adding our calorie burn to our total daily energy expenditure. And when I read that in your study, it kind of just blew me away. So can you explain to us what this actually means? Because it shakes up everything I think we've ever thought about exercise. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So, um, well, I think the easiest way to, to tell this story is to tell it the way that I came to this, which was as surprised as you were, I think. Um, I, you know, I'm an anthropologist. I said the human evolution. I wonder how the body evolved and how that kind of shapes the way health and, and, and our lives work today, how the past shapes the present. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I've always been interested in, in, in energy expenditure, how the body burns calories. And that's because that's where the rubber hits the road in evolutionary biology, right? All organisms are evolved to get energy in from their environment, the form of food or, well, sunlight if you're a plant, but, you know, to bring energy in and to turn that into offspring. That's where that is, that is the, that is it. That's the fundamental, you know, central bit of, of evolutionary biology there. So energy expenditure is really central to all of that. Um, and I realized I'd been studying energy expenditure and walking and running and locomotion um, in, in graduate school. And I'd done that for about five or six years. And I knew that stuff very well. I you know, exercise energy expenditure. I knew it very well. Um, and I wanted to understand how it, that works into the sort of the whole picture of the calories burned per day for, for a human. But I wanted to do that in an ecologically relevant context. I wanted to do that where it mattered. Right. Mm-hmm. And for humans, this weird world that we built ourselves, these zoos that we live in, um, th- these are not normal, right? These are all very recent, uh, you know, constructs. We're a hunting and gathering species, you know, our humans and our ancestors have been hunting and gathering for 2.5 million years. And so I wanted to go to a hunting and gathering population, look and ask the question, how does locomotion, how does walking, working, how does that fit into the energy expenditure there? And I had the same expectation that you would have had, which is, we know they're really physically active. And so when we measure their calories expended by men and women in this hunting and gathering population, it's going to be through the roof, right? Because they're getting literally, you know, the men get 19,000 steps a day. Women get 13,000 steps a day. Um, this is the Hadza community I work with in Northern Tanzania. They still hunt and gather. Um, really amazing, magical place to work. Anyway, we went there, we, we did the measurements. We used this isotope tracking technique, which gives us this really precise, accurate measurement of how many calories you're burning every day got all the samples back home, ran the data, 
And, you know, I'm expecting to see this really elevated expenditure for these guys. That's the whole reason we, we got the money to go do the work. And, you know, it's one of those moments as a scientist where you're like, wow, I didn't really expect this. I need to recalibrate pretty much everything I thought I knew um, <laughs> because it's not what we saw at all. They had the same energy expenditures in the Hadza community as we have in the U.S. and Europe, even though the differences in activity level are, couldn't be more stark. Um, and so that tells us that the body isn't working the way we thought it does, the way that you were trained, the way that I was trained in this stuff. It's, it's, a, real, it's a real paradigm shift in how we think about calorie expenditure. All right. So, yeah, this just blow, this blows my mind. And, for, and first of all, I will say and for all of you listening, if you, t- if you sort of listen to what Dr. Ponzer is saying, which I think is this is incredibly cool, but I'm just going to repeat it and correct me if I get this wrong, Dr. Ponzer. But so you go to a community that all of us would agree if we were walk, if we lived in this community, we'd be doing perhaps two, maybe three times the activity that we're doing. I don't, we, we yeah. would be moving constantly, right? Yep. So most, I think the average, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the average American gets like 5,000 steps per day. So that's two to three times this if you're going and living in this Hadza community. And what you're expecting to find is, well, that means their total energy use for the day is going to be far exceed our own. Yeah, but instead, right. what you found was they're moving a ton more. But when we go and look at total daily energy expenditure, it actually is the same for the Western world, which then tells us we don't have, and I'm using your terminology here, I think we don't have an additive metabolism. It doesn't add exercise onto our resting energy expenditure. Instead, it constrains some aspect of metabolism Mm -hmm. to account for this extra Mm -hmm. activity that it's putting out. And so the next question is, what aspects of metabolism is it actually constraining? Because we have, you know, the thermic effect of food, we have a non-exercise activity thermogenesis, we have Mm -hmm. the thermic effect of exercise, we have basal metabolic rate. Do we know which aspects of metabolism the metabolism or the metabolism is doing its accounting with? Do we know which of these elements are actually being suppressed as a result of excess energy expenditure? Yeah, it's, we do, we have some good clues and we have some really good evidence. But right now, it's sort of kind of tangential evidence. We haven't done the study. We're trying to get the money to do the study right now, mm-hmm. where we get somebody exercising and we watch the dials turn on all their various other systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's what we know: for this is we've known this for uh, years now. If you look at people who exercise regularly and people who don't, um, the people who exercise regularly have lower inflammation levels. Right. Well, what's inflammation? Well, that's your immune system being active more than more than needs to be active. Right. Chronic inflammation is sort of background immune function that doesn't need to happen. Mm. Um, People who don't exercise uh, have higher stress reactivity. So, you know, throughout your day, you have a stressful event. Maybe that could be like talking to a stranger is a stressful Mm. event psychologically. Mm. Your adrenaline levels go up, your cortisol levels go up and then eventually come back down. That response is is uh, blunted and returns to normal faster if you're somebody who exercises all the time. So you're spent less energy on that. Um, we know that uh, people who exercise more, keep they seem to keep their uh, reproductive hormones in a healthier place. So not sky high, but a little bit at a healthier level. Um, and that seems to be related, we think, to the fact that people who exercise more have less uh, reproductive cancers, mm. fewer, you know, less lower risk of that. And so we can see the body turning down these kind of physiological systems. Um, I, I don't expect that we're going to see the difference in, uh, the digestion costs of food, thermic effect of food. I don't think we're going to see it there. I maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. 
uh, neat, this, you know, do you fidget less? Do you sit instead of stand kind of stuff? Do, or do you change your, your physical activity subtly? Um, it could, that, that might contribute. Um, I don't think it's going to explain all of it, but I think this is going to be a across the board changes in our physiology. It's not going to be just one thing. Yeah. And that speaks to just how pervasive exercise is, right? It gets into every system, including our psychology, um, and it has a huge effect, huge beneficial effects across the board. I love this. So we don't yet know. We just know that the metabolism is doing some accounting some way, and we have some good guesses. It could be yeah. inflammatory in reaction. It could be. So this is almost like it's, it's becoming, you know, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but more efficient in a sense, right? So it's dialing down certain aspects mm-hmm. of function based on our ability to return to homeostasis faster because we've sort of trained ourselves with this hormetic sort of response of exercise. So it doesn't have this actually additive impact. That's right. One of the things that kind of, um, you know, I've been in the obesity world for a while clinically. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I have done and played around with is this idea of putting people under uh, eat less, exercise more, you know, widening the calorie gap, intake and output for very short periods of time to decrease, in my mind, compensations. Compensations mm-hmm. being things like excess hunger, energy cravings, which we haven't touched on yet, where obviously exercise is known to cause increases in hunger and cravings and things like that, and seeing a better response with Mm -hmm. short uh, sort of exposures to uh, intake and output. I'm wondering, and that's one question I have for you is sort of in my work, is there anything to this? Because when I look at your graph and in that first paper I read, it seemed to be with exercise that it starts out just like we would expect for a short period of time, it seems that it is additive. And then all of a sudden, we have this constrained effect. Do we have an idea of the time frame by which that happens? So, you're, so there's, there's sort of two interwoven questions there, I think. Mm-hmm. One is, what's the time frame? If you start an exercise program tomorrow, mm-hmm. and you, you're sedentary today, you start an exercise program tomorrow, how long until your body adjusts to that, time, to, to that new workload? Because it yes. won't be, it won't be tomorrow, right? We're, the one pe- one pe- way people get this idea wrong is they say, "Oh, you mean if I exercise tomorrow, it won't, it won't change my expenditure?" Yeah. It will, because you're still going to have day to day variation. We're talking about kind of a baseline, day to day kind of long term adjustment that your body makes to everything mm-hmm. to account for this new lifestyle that you have. You're still going to have day to day adjustments. The background changes will happen more slowly, and, and will have that the effect of kind of canceling out the energy cost of the exercise or rejuggling the energy cost of the exercise, but it won't happen tomorrow. Yeah. So there, we think that that timeline of adjustments happening, um, and we actually, this is based on weight loss studies where people try to get people to lose weight with just exercise alone. Mm-hmm. And you can watch the bodies adjust to that uh, uh, in, in terms of how many pounds they're losing. That adjustment seems to kick in at about three months or so, mm-hmm. um, give or take. This isn't well understood yet, So, it, it, but it's around that time frame. Okay, now the other question is, the other time for the other thing to think about is um, the other axis here is if I'm completely sedentary and I exercise, are you telling me that I won't get any increase in expenditure at all from that very, very sedentary person to the person who's, you know, running 30 miles a, a week or something like this? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, well, that's also not very well characterized yet. Um, but as far as we can tell from exercise studies, again, exercise intervention studies, um, there does seem to be maybe a little bit of a rise. Maybe you can get a hundred calories a day. Maybe if you're, if you're completely sedentary and you start exercising a lot, maybe you can get to about a hundred calories a day more, maybe. And that's maybe where you'll stabilize. Um, not well understood. 
that hundred calories a day more doesn't seem to help you too much because you eat it up. Right. So there's that, that compensation as well is that not only does your body compensate with metabolism, but your, your hunger compensates to make you eat up those gains. Um, and, and then in that case, we're also talking to remember about somebody who's really completely sedentary and starts exercising. We're not talking about the people who are kind of already in the middle somewhere and decide to add more exercise to their life. We're not sure they'll see any gains at all. Although that's an open question, exactly sort of how that plays out. So this is early days and all this stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's, and it's really exciting. And it's it really, I, you know, it's one of these things where I go, okay, this, this information is going to finally help us perhaps because, you know, it's a difficult area yeah. to deal with in the weight loss world. There's so much going on in the, the, um, our results are abysmal when you look at the statistics, yeah. but hopefully this is going to help us sort of understand what's going on so we can make real dents. But right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, based on what you're telling us, um, and we've heard this before in statements like you can't out train a bad diet yeah. and stuff like that. But right now, it seems like if you're going to put any emphasis on either diet or exercise, you probably are going to really want to be focusing on diet and using exercise for its health benefits and perhaps to regulate yeah. inflammatory responses and hunger responses. I know there's a bell-shaped curve with this, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, but people who exercise more seem to be, um, they may get increased hunger um, as acutely related to exercise, mm -hmm. but they seem to be able to control their hunger and cravings sort of better overall is my understanding. Is that actually how it works for people? Yeah, I mean, I think the, so what you're, what you're talking about is changing our mindset from looking at exercise as having kind of this, you know, it builds muscle and burns calories. And, and a lot of people, that's kind of what they think about when they think about exercise is how we've been trained to move from that view to a view where exercise is this regulation changer, right? It's changing everything. It's kind of like the rhythm section for your body and it's changing the way everything works together and having that view of it. Um, then it makes sense that it would do things like affect hunger and satiety feelings. And so I think you're right. There's good evidence that you know, if you are able to lose weight, for example, exercise helps you keep that weight off. Mm. Why is that? Well, we think it helps you match hunger and fullness feelings more appropriately to your, your new weight and your new, uh, your new normal. Yeah. Um, and again, at the very, if people who are completely sedentary, who get zero exercise, truly, truly at the far end of the spectrum there, they get so little activity that it seems that they get out of regulation in terms of, of hunger and fullness as well. And so there's kind of a dysregulation that happens there that really isn't about the calories. It's about the fact that you've, you don't have the rhythm section. Your body's not listening to this kind of back and forth with activity. Um, and so, yeah, I think all of those approaches, what you're talking about makes total sense to me. Um, and I think we'll get a lot farther. I and mean, you asked, well, what if I do these short bursts? Am I going to get, you know, Am I going to be able to kind of get around the compensation issues or, or is that going to work better than the long chronic changes in activity level? Maybe, I don't know. But what you're asking basically is a, is a regulation question. Am I going to get different regulatory responses, different hormonal responses to exercise if I, if I pattern it different ways? Perhaps, mm. but that's, you know, that, that's what we need to do next is stop thinking about exercise as just calories and muscle and start thinking about it as all these other things it does. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, as I read your work, um, I started to use a phrasing that I'll just check it with the expert here. But I started to say, you know, what you really want is you don't want a fast metabolism. You want a more flexible metabolism. It seems mm -hmm. to me that the exercise is making you more flexible or a little bit more responsive. It's regulating sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. It's doing many different things. So I started speaking of it that way. I don't know that if you would say that is accurate or not, but it seems to me whenever I look at the research in general, and this goes mm -hmm. into things like cold exposure and trying to speed up metabolism in any way, yeah. what we're also doing seems to be speeding up 
hunger and cravings or causing these compensations. And because you don't actually see cold exposure leading to weight loss, despite seeing short-term bumps in energy expenditure. And so there's this really weird thing that happens here where we go, oh, we want a fast metabolism. And I know you talk a lot about that in your book where you're kind of like, well, you don't really want a fast metabolism, but I'm wondering <laughs> if you like the idea of this yeah. more flexible aspect of metabolism, being able, being able to choose your fuel sources, being able to regulate your hunger and be a more flexible sort of uh, physiological state. Yeah, I like that. I mean, you know, it's, uh, I, I like the idea that you're basically putting sort of the species normal amount of activity back into your life and all your systems are going to respond to that better and be more. And I think, you know, I think flexibility is a nice way to think about it. You're going to be able to respond to, you know, day-to-day changes in diet, day-to-day changes in activity in a healthier way because you have that activity, that chronic activity in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm down with that. I like that okay. a lot. And, you know, in terms of it, it's, this reminds me um, of some people have been asking, well, what about boosting my metabolism? And I talk a little bit about that in the book, but, you know, I think if somebody is telling you that you're going to boost your metabolism, that can be a new red flag for people. If you're telling you, if you're going to get your metabolism boosted, then you ask some questions about that because yeah. probably that's that means that it's it's not it's BS. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I understand, yeah. and and it's funny because some of the marketing is like we have to learn from this. Some of the marketing I have done in the past has yeah. used in that language, and I think if we're going to be evidence based and really yeah. pay attention to what the data is, we have to be able to change those kinds of, you know, marketing and the kind of messaging that we have to be sort of more realistic. And that brings me to kind of some of the things where um, having someone like you on the show allows us to bust a lot of myths. And so I was wondering if we could do some of that, because one of the arguments we've we've had, and certainly I wrote a book back in 2010 that became a bestseller, partly because it talked about hormonal weight Mm -hmm. loss. And it, it, one of the things in that is that, you know, to me, I've always said there's two different is to do this are two things required. One, you need a calorie deficit. That's absolutely true. And I want to mm-hmm. check with the expert to see, is that true? Yeah. And two, you need sort of hormonal balance, which is a marketing term for, hey, we need to regulate our hunger and cravings. In other words, we need to sustain that calorie deficit over mm-hmm. time. So from your perspective, do calories actually matter? Like this, this idea that calories don't matter, we shouldn't count them, we shouldn't pay attention to them. What what does the expert in metabolism have to say on that for all of us? Yeah, calories, when it comes to weight, mm-hmm. it's just calories. Calories are all that matters, right? And it's really hard to keep track of them. So I can understand why, why people get frustrated with the idea of counting calories and you know, knowing how many calories you actually burn is it turns out to be really hard to do unless you can measure it in a lab. So mm-hmm. I get it that it's hard to keep uh, track of them. Mm-hmm. But you know, saying that calories don't matter for your weight is like saying money doesn't matter for your bank account. Right. I mean, just because you're bad at, at accounting <laughs> doesn't mean that it isn't still just cash in the bank. I mean, that's what that is. Yeah. And every every gram of tissue in you on you uh, is is food that you ate that you didn't burn off. Right. So you can think about all that food in terms of calories. It really is all calories when it comes to weight. You covered a couple of things. And I, I think some of this may be some other reading I've done. But uh, just let me see if I get this correct and, and maybe you can confirm or deny this. So when we're trying to even track, weigh and measure calories, like looking at labels on food mm. and off of menus and using my fitness pal, yeah. I've, had, I've read data and perhaps from you that this is perhaps up to 15 to 20 percent inaccurate when we do that that way to begin yeah. with. And then the other thing is, is that we can, depending on, um, you know, sort of some of the data I've read, you can underestimate the amount that you have eaten 
by 25% up to 50% depending on the individual. And I think it speaks to what you're sort of talking about here. The metabolism doesn't necessarily think in terms of days. So I always use the analogy, if you eat 200 less calories every day for five days, but then you overeat 700 calories on Saturday and Sunday, your psychological human brain goes, I ate less five days. I ate more two days, but your metabolism goes, you actually were in a 400 calorie excess, you right. know, a thousand and fourteen hundred. And so I think some of this is going on, but is this true that we can't be 1000% sure based on yeah. my fitness pal data and that we are overestimating by that much? I'm sorry to break into the show, but I wanted to take a second to cover one of our sponsors and tell you all about Paleo Valley at paleovalley.com. These are the grass-fed sticks that I tell you all so much about that all of my friends know I have on hand constantly. They are in my car. They are at my house. I keep them at my sister's home and my parents' house. I have these things everywhere because they are the simplest, most convenient whole foods protein supplement you can get, almost like carrying around pure protein, low-carb protein in your pocket. They also, these Paleo Valley beef sticks, are the only, the only 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef sticks on the market. They use organic spices. They are naturally fermented instead of using nitrates and nitrites that can be a problem in some of these cured meats, and they simply taste fantastic. Check out the original or the jalapeno. Those are my favorites. Please make sure you go over to paleovalley.com and visit. When checking out, use the code NEXTLEVEL for a 15% discount. Remember, our sponsors keep the show going by you giving them your patronage and spending your money on these high quality products. You actually do a few things. One, you're helping to support the podcast. And two, you are helping your health. And three, you are making sure that good quality companies like Paleo Valley can be out there doing their business, changing the world, making the earth better. One of the things you may not know about this is that grass-fed organic and grass-finished beef is doing something that is so utterly important for our environment, actually helping to repopulate the topsoil. A lot of people don't know this, but our topsoil is being extremely depleted. And raising animals, especially cattle, the correct way helps to get that topsoil back. This is one of the reasons why I love Paleo Valley, not to mention it tastes fantastic, but they're one of these companies, like my other sponsors, Cured Nutrition and Organifi, that are doing the right things by the environment. I really appreciate everything they do, and I hope you will check them out. Thanks so much. Paleovalley.com. Use the code NEXTLEVEL. And now, back to the show. It is time to talk about one of our sponsors, our earliest sponsor, Cured Nutrition. This is a CBD company. Cured Nutrition is another one of those next level human companies that is doing amazing things in the world. Let me tell you a little bit about one of the things I've been doing with CBD here recently. There is some really interesting research showing that chronic cannabis users, these are people who are smoking marijuana, are actually down-regulating the cannabinoid 1 receptor. Well, guess what the cannabinoid 1 receptor is involved in? Well, it's involved in cravings and hunger. And there is some really interesting 
mouse research that shows mice given products that lower CB1 or being engineered with a lower CB1 activity actually eat less and are not obese as a result of that. And so I have been experimenting using CBD to lower hunger to downregulate the CB1 receptor just the way chronic cannabis users tend to be very thin. It has been working very well. Now, of course, the other thing that I use this for and have used it for, for since day one is uh, Cured Nutrition has a product called Zen that is a mix of magnesium and CBD and some other really nice formulations in there that I use to help me sleep. I have notoriously bad sleep. My sleep still is not perfect, but the Cured Nutrition product Zen has made a big difference to helping me sleep better. And that is just huge. Now, of course, they have other products. They also have a product called Rise, which I do not use, but I have used in the past. It is great for those people who like to have a pick-me-up in the morning to focus better. So Zen and Rise are fantastic, but any of their CBD products used for downregulation of the CB1 receptor to help with hunger and cravings, if you're one of these people who is constantly overeating and on a diet, you find that, hey, when I'm on a diet, I get this crazy sort of hunger and cravings. This may be something you want to check out. So check out CuredNutrition.com. Use the code NEXTLEVEL. I get a kickback to help us have these discussions on the show. It's a great way for me to be able to do this work. So thank you for Cured Nutrition for that. Of course, Cured Nutrition gets the sale and you get to work with a fantastic company that gets results with their supplements. I hope you will check them out. CuredNutrition.com. Use the code next level. And now let's go ahead and get back to the show. Let's do it. It's kind of interesting. It's one of those psychological uh, it's, it's like a society-wide psychological experiment. We're told our whole adult lives that humans burn 2,000 calories a day. Mm. And then you put somebody in a study and ask them how many calories they think they're eating and burning every day. And they keep very careful track. And wouldn't you know it, it's about 2,000 calories a day, mm. right? And it actually, if you measure how many calories they're eating and burning, they're off by 30% or more, like you said, on average. I mean, some people get it dead on, sure. Mm. But on average, we get about 30%. We, we undercount by about 30% of the calories we think we're eating. Um, so that you're missing a meal a day, a meal's worth of calories a day, something like that, right? That, that's crazy. Yeah. And we all do it. And, you know, there's no, um, there's, you know, across cultures, people do it. It's, it's, uh, it is crazy. Uh, and so when you, so you add the fact that you have a very hard time keeping track of the calories you eat um, to add that to the fact that you have a very hard time knowing how many calories you burn. Because, you know, you go to my fitness pal, you said you did the run, you said you're this big and it, it tries to do the additive thing mm. and it doesn't account for the fact that your metabolism is juggling, right? Always well, changing. For good luck, man. Good luck trying to keep track your calories. Mm. And then somebody comes in, swoops in and says, well, I got your answer for you. It's because calories don't matter. Mm. And you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Cause I can't, you know, yep. so I think that, that that's where, that's the gap in understanding where people can swoop in and, and it's a becomes a real ripe area for uh, for some misinformation in science, I think. Makes makes great sense. Here's another one we hear. We oftentimes hear, like, I'm a big muscle-bound guy. I, mm -hmm. I work out with weights. A lot of people say, oh, I'm burning hundreds of calories for every pound of muscle I have on my body. Mm -hmm. How much are we actually burning when we put on, you know, extra muscle? Is, yeah. it, is it really this big of a deal? I can tell you the answer for that. We, we know it's, uh, it's about 40 kilocalories per kilogram. Mm -hmm. So, so <laughs> in terms not, of a day, it's not so it's not much. No, so you if you gain ten pounds of muscle, 
um, then that works out to what? About 200 calories a day. Mm-hmm. It's not nothing. Yeah. It's not nothing. But you know, if you put down 10,000 muscle, you might feel like you're doing even more than that. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah. So it's not nothing, but it, it's not hundreds per pound or something like that. No. One, just to change gears here, because it's one, I was like, I got to ask Dr. Ponser this. Do you think, do you think perhaps that um, we become, and has this been looked at, do we become more efficient as we exercise? You know, hmm. when we think, is this perhaps that actually the, the energy we burn with exercise as we do it over and over again? Like, let's say we go, you and I go out for a run together and let's say yeah. we burn 200 calories and then we keep doing that month after month. Is it, do you think you're going to find, or, or do we have data that says, well, actually, after three months, you're actually not burning 200 calories from that exercise anymore. You're burning more like 150. I'm just yeah. curious. Does it, no, does it work that way? It, it's, uh, the short answer is no. The longer answer is it depends. Mm. So if it's something like running where you have done it since you were a kid and we're all equally pretty good at it, mm. then there, you don't see a benefit there because the benefits you get are mechanical. Mm. Right. So, um, and actually, this would be something really fun to do. And I don't think it's been done very well uh, when you are uh, re- in resistance training. Right. So, think about all the different exercises you do to build and maintain muscle in the gym, you know, lifting weights. Um, you, you know, the technique really matters, mm-hmm. uh, particularly for not hurting yourself, but also for being able to maximize how much weight you're, you're lifting. Um, probably the, the technique matters as well for how many calories you're burning, even if that's not what you're focused on in the gym, it probably does affect it. Um, so things where technique is important and, and it's a new thing that you don't do in your daily life, then yeah, you'll see an efficiency gain from that for sure. It, I don't think it's going to be 30 or 40%, but it might be 10 or 20%. Mm-hmm. When people have studied uh, either you know elite runners versus weekend warrior kind of guys, or have taken moderate exercisers and trained them to run more and more and more and more and, and measured efficiency changes that way, those differences are really small, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're running, again, it's a task everybody kind of does. Um, and so you might see one or 2% marginal differences in efficiency, but, and sometimes you see nothing depending on the study. It's really not a big player. Mm. So this is going to be interesting, really sort of understanding over time with your work and other people's work. What, what is the actual component that's changing the most in this constrained model? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really, it's really interesting. Now, one of the things I love about your work is that, um, there's, there are so many people, and I know this must some for someone like you, this must drive you crazy, man. But it's like there's so many people over the years talking about paleo man this, paleo <laughs> man that, and here's a guy who actually yeah. lived with quote paleo man and has studied multiple types of yeah. hunter gatherer tribes, and yeah. so I want to talk about this myth because if we were to listen to the common sort of dogma out there from podcasters and right. you know bloggers and YouTubers, what we would think is that Paleo Man was eating nothing but lard and protein and no carbohydrates whatsoever, and they yeah. were all ketogenic. Educate us on this. What what's the deal here? Because you're someone who's studied multiple hunter gatherers, yeah. not just living hunter gatherers, but you've studied actual you know anthropological data looking at you know. Um, people who have long since deceased looking at, you know, their bones and looking and digging through the soil and seeing what, looking at the ash and looking at all the things that they may have been consuming. And so I'm curious from you, school us on this. Like, what is the actual with this? Is that true or not? Are we supposed to just be eating, you know, fat and protein? No, uh, is a short answer. Uh, So the, uh, you know, a group like the Hatha, for example, so a, a hunter gatherer group living in a warm climate, their plant, you know, first of all, there's a lot of diversity. 
And so there's a weird thing that happens when people cast their minds back to the stone age or whatever, all of a sudden they think that there was only one diet around the whole globe. How, how ridiculous would that be? I mean, is there one diet around the globe right now? You know, I don't think so. I, I know that when I go to get takeout, I might get Chinese or Mexican or Thai or whatever, or Italian. I mean, there's different cuisines today. You don't think there always was. Um, and so, uh, so first of all, th there was an incredible amount of diversity. And we know that because we've got data of most of these groups are, you know, living in towns and cities now, but we have data from the 1800s and early 1900s when we still can capture groups, you know, data from groups living hunter-gatherer lifestyles, hundreds of them. And there's an incredible amount of diversity. And if you're a warm weather, warm climate group like the Hadza, who I work with, it's a mix of plants and animals, about 50-50 on average. Um, but that changes hugely day to day, changes week to week. And a piece of the puzzle that, that nobody talks about in the paleo world, or in, they don't like to talk about it, is honey, right? As a group like I work with, like the Hadza, about 10 to 20% of their diet is honey. And the honey is just sugar and water. That's fan. That's crazy. Yeah, it's <laughs> it is crazy. It is crazy. So if you look at you know we've done the analysis. If you look at how many carbs uh, a Hadza man or woman eat, um, it's more than you get as a percentage of calories. It's more than you were eating in the states, mm. right? Um, and the idea that that you would sort of have zero carbs in your diet or so low carbs you're in ketosis all the time, we have absolutely zero evidence of that for any any warm or even temperate climate hunter-gatherers. That's just, that just doesn't happen. Now, it is true that in the Arctic, you notice if you ever pay attention to this, the, uh, the paleo folks like to point to two groups of folks, two, two kinds of communities to support their ideas that, that the past was all meat. One is uh, Arctic populations like Inuit, Eskimo groups. Um, and another group is, is pastoralists like the Maasai who live in, um, in uh, they, they herd cattle for their living. Both of those lifestyles are about 8,000 years old, 9,000 years old, about the same as farming, right? Mm -hmm. Which of course, farming is supposed to be new and crazy and weird and not, and not representative, but these groups somehow are representative. Anyway, um, humans eat a diverse amount of uh, diverse foods. They eat what's there, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, if you live in the Arctic, you don't eat many plants, uh, you know, of course not. Um, but if you live in warm weather, you, you, you know, it's a mix, man. So yeah, that, that's, uh, and I'll say this, if you have a keto diet and it works for you, that's great. Good for you. But, you know, what kills me as somebody who studies, who studies human evolution is the kind of rewriting of our past to sort of justify your very particular diet. Yeah. Um, and the vegan, you know, there are vegan evangelical evangelists who do it too, right? In the past, we were eating all plants and yeah, it, it, I don't understand it. I, I think the drive, there's a human drive to justify, you know, to justify yourself. And not just not to say I do this because it works for me, but to say I do this because it's the only way and it's what's right for all humans. Yeah. Um, and that drive, I think, pushes us to, to, to do some funny, funny gymnastics with the past. I agree. It's, it's almost like, you know, you got now you got you had religion and politics and now throw nutrition, <laughs> now throw nutrition into that. And that's the yeah. state that that sort of we're in. But I do think there are people because of all the craziness who are wanting to understand how to be an agnostic scientific mind. Yeah. And so it's nice to have someone like you who this is what you do. You know, you have an agnostic scientific yeah. mind. It's you're not attached to anything. You're just attached to the data. I think for all of us, we want to try to be that way and get beyond our biases, which is nice to talk to someone like you to kind of say, hey, look, let's look at the data. The data don't support this. One of the things you right. said is we are, I think your terminology used is that we are opportunistic 
omnivores. In other words, we wouldn't be around. You and I would not be having this conversation if we humans could not exploit multiple different types of, yeah. of foods. And we, we, we did. One of the things um, that uh, I'll just, just to finish this conversation, you know, cause we have people say, Oh, well, we're all supposed to be eating raw. We're all yeah. supposed to be eating these kinds of things. So um, one of the things that, you know, I think is important too, is that is this kind of stuff um, true. Like as, as humans was my understanding is that, you know, fire was a huge boom oh. for us evolutionarily yeah. that helped yeah. us get more calories out of our food. And if we did not have cooking, then perhaps we still would not be talking today that this was a big deal for us as humans as yeah. we evolved. Absolutely. Now, fire is basically a way to externally digest your food, right? Mm -hmm. And our digestive systems have, have adapted to that. And now if we try to eat a raw food diet and, and raw food only, um, people have studied this, you know, men and women who only eat raw food diets uh, have a hard time keeping healthy weight. Mm. They, women often stop cycling, right? And stop menstruating, stop ovulating. That's not a great evolutionary solution, right? I mean, evolution is about having kids. So uh, men and women re report reduced libido. Uh, so yeah, there, there's all sorts of good evidence that raw foodism, you know, strict raw foodism isn't really a, a human thing. In fact, we, we depend on cooked food. Um, and the other thing I'd say is people have a hard time on raw food diets today and that's with domesticated foods, mm. right? That's with, with, you know, super low fiber, high sugar, um, vegetables and, 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 you know, plants, uh, fruits and vegetables that's with, um, fatty domesticated animals to eat, right? Mm. If you are eating lean wild game and undomesticated plants, good luck. Good luck on a raw food diet. We're, we're just not built for it anymore. We, we've had a fire for so long. Our bodies are actually evolutionarily adapted to eating cooked food. And we have a hard time without it. So interesting. What's your thought? So what's your thought on, uh, I was in a debate um, the other day with someone who's a carnivore uh, mm -hmm. advocate. I know you've heard of the carnivore diet. Sure. And they were essentially saying, we do not require any fiber and our paleo ancestors did not eat a lot of fiber. Now, my understanding, and again, I, I want you to correct me, but my understanding is that they're getting like up to 100 to 150 grams of fiber daily. We're getting more like 30 grams. Is this true? Am I in the ballpark here or am I off? No, you're right. Uh, you know, groups like the Hadza get, it might, maybe not 100, but you know, 80, 90 grams of fiber easily a day. Mm. Um, and, you know, undomesticated plant foods, which again are half the diet in most warm weather plant places half the time, um, you know, they're, they're full of fiber. When you, when you domesticate plants, what people did is they picked plant, they, they kept on getting, you know, breeding the ones that had more starch, more sugar and less fiber. Mm. And so you go to the grocery store today and they're actually low fiber compared to the past. Mm. Um, no, the idea that we had a low fiber diets or zero fiber diets is just, it's part of that kind of mythology of the carnivore past. And they're just, there isn't any evidence for it. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, it's really, again, kind of rewriting the past to, to justify your modern diet. Yeah. It must be baffling for you when you see the data all the time to be like, where, where are they kind of getting this from? But I think it, it was really interesting to kind of understand they're getting it from, you know, the Maasai and Inuits primarily yeah. um, who are relatively as recent as uh, sort of agriculture. So yeah. I think it's, it's uh, sort of really interesting what we do um, with nutrition. Yeah. One of the things that um, I, I wanted to talk to you about briefly, and then, you know, I, I know you, you want to be respectful of your time, but one of the things that I have read and have done most of my life, personal trainer, 25 years before I went to 
uh, get, I have a, my, I have my degree in naturopathic medicine. I've done mm-hmm. obesity medicine primarily clinically and written books on that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think people are going to want me to ask you, because they're like, well, Jade, you've written an awful lot about the idea of high intensity interval type of training yeah. and this epoch response. And this essentially quote, boosts the metabolism and um, I think you've answered this and I think it's basically like, well, you might get a little bit of an uptick, you know, post-workout or you might get, you know, maybe that particular day, but the body compensates for that weeks and sort of months down the line. But yeah. what, what do you say about people when they say, well, what about the afterburn effect of exercise and, you know, this short intense exercise or resistance training versus cardio? Aren't these things different? Yeah, uh, we, we don't have any evidence that they're different right now. Um, I would say I would love to see a study where we RCT, randomize people into different groups. You do HIT, you do cardio, you do resistance. And we see not just the fitness effects of that, that'd be interesting, but I want to see the metabolic effects. And, and, and it's a really clear prediction. Mm. If HIT, it, you know, doing HIT exercise raises metabolism and, and doesn't have this compensation effect, we, should, we can measure that. That's very doable. We should see an additive um, effect instead of a constrained effect. Yeah. I mean, could be, I, you know, and uh, like you say, I'm an, I'm an agnostic data driven guy. I try to be, I mean, you know, we're all human, but I try to be. And if that's what the data, that's where the data take us, then that would be super cool. But we don't have any evidence for that right now. As far as we can tell right now, it really is kind of like the, just the total workload, however you get it. That's the cue that your body is listening to in terms of metabolism. Now, of course, you're going to get different muscle responses in terms of muscle building versus toning, of course. But in terms of like the metabolic response of calories per day, it seems to be sort of gross workload as far as we can tell. Yeah. And my guess would be it wouldn't make a difference if I'm thinking about this from an evolutionary perspective and adaptation. When I started reading your book, I was kind of like, this makes sense. Would we really want a metabolism and would it be a survival advantage to have a metabolism that was additive in that way? Wouldn't we want a metabolism to say this calorie gap's getting pretty big. I better start you know, budgeting things a little bit in case I run out of gas on the, on the planes. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you share that, but my guess would be, it's probably not necessarily going to matter that much, but I can't wait to, um, to see one of the things that I have, uh, in, um, read, and I'm curious if you've looked at this, but, um, I forget, I think Christopher Scott is his name. He wrote a, a series of articles back, I think in 2015, but basically he was talking about the idea, and this may go a little bit beyond what most of the listeners will be able to, to kind of comprehend. So I'll try to not botch this and maybe you can correct me. But, you know, one of the things that you're doing in your studies is doubly labeled water, right? And so if I mm-hmm. understand this correctly, and for everyone listening, and, and Dr. Ponzer, I'm speaking to the expert, so I'm a little bit, you know, you can correct me on this. But if we were going to try to measure all of us, if we were all out with the Hadza and we, the old way of measuring, energy expenditure would be like to basically hook us up with an oxygen mask and measure CO2 and, you know, uh, the amount of oxygen we're taking in, the amount of CO2 we're breathing off. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you started doing was saying, well, that's not practical to do in this setting. Right. But we're going to do this doubly labeled water, which corresponds exactly with um, sort of the CO2 O2 ratio, something in research they call the respiratory quotient or whatever that a lot of people won't know. But this is still uh, sort of based on the idea of aerobic energy expenditure. And so one of the things uh, Christopher Scott talks about is this idea as, as, as we basically go into anaerobic metabolism Mm. and we create lactic, lactic, lactic acid from lactate, you know, that there's a heat uh, sort of thing that happens there when you uh, break that bond of lactate back to 
you know, to back to go to glycolysis. Mm-hmm. So he's saying we're missing that heat component in our um, in our sort of uh, understanding of using doubly labeled water to uh, predict this heat response. This yeah. is sort of science that co- sort of is beyond me. But if that is the case, then how do we eventually account for that? Is it possible then that high intensity energy anaerobic output, we're missing a significant amount of our energy predictions because we're not able to directly measure heat and we're extrapolating through uh, these uh, aerobic gases? Yeah, uh, the sh- well, until you look at that pathway specifically, this is how a scientist answers that question. Mm-hmm. Until you look at that pathway specifically in isolation and measure it, then we're all, then it's all in the world of hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. We're, but here, here's what I can tell you about the data. Mm-hmm. Um, doubly labeled water has been validated, you know, against humans in metabolic chambers in, in, in which it can be validated against heat production, um, you know, a lot. It's the best validated technique we have um, for free living subjects. And it works not just for humans, it works for other species too. And so um, we can't be missing much because it wouldn't validate if we were missing mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Um, and the, the, you know, you had it exactly right that if you, if you are breaking down your glucose molecule and you are doing it so quickly with anaerobic metabolism that you kick out a lactate molecule, a lactate molecule uh, as opposed to going into your, into your mitochondria, it's going to come back right? It's going to come back and get metabolized aerobically. So everything is aerobic metabolism eventually, mm-hmm. even if it's not while you're doing the lift. And is there a little bit of sort of uh, heat that's lost in the, in the chemical transition back? It, it can't be that big. It just, mm-hmm. no, I don't believe so. Yeah. And what's, that's really cool the way you put that, right? Because I, I think for those of you who are following us, essentially what you're saying is we, we put, we've had people in, you know, in metabolic chambers where we're measuring heat changes and gas exchanges, mm-hmm. and there's not much uh, difference no. in that. So no. I-, I love that. So I, I-, I want to leave it to you to kind of uh, tell us where we go next with this. Your work is absolutely fantastic. It's, it's, I think it's incredibly important to have a PhD who's an actual real expert in this stuff, educating all of us. What else would you want all of us to know? Or do you find sort of interesting and uh, sort of on the horizon that we should all be uh, looking forward to? Yeah. Um, well, a few things. One is I think that that question of exactly what changes and in what timeline as we change our lifestyles, right? How does our body adapt? What exactly does change and what changes first and what changes most? That's a set of questions that's going to keep uh, folks like me busy for the next five or 10 years. So, you know, so, so watch this space. If you want to know where this goes, that, that's where that science is going to go. And we're really excited about that. Um, for me personally, and somebody who gets to work with groups like the Hadza and, you know, other groups around the world is so exciting and fun. I've been struck in the last few years about how, it, you know, it, it's not just diet and exercise that keeps them so healthy, right? They're outside all the time. They have social connection throughout their whole life. They don't live, you know, there's not a lot of, of economic inequality in a place like Hadzaland. Um, and so I do wonder, and I'd love to, to know more, these connections between being outdoors, uh, psychological health, and cardiometabolic health, and what those connect. We know, we know in, you know, in the U.S. that if you are depressed or if you have social isolation, that leads to bad health. Mm-hmm. And that's treated separately from the diet and exercise issue. But I would love to see those get uh, put together in, in useful, interesting ways um, and, and kind of integrate that. Um, 
know, those are the two big things for me. You know, how, what's, how do we go further, deeper with this exercise response thing? And then how do we also broaden to bring in other elements of lifestyle and ask how they affect uh, health and happiness? Yeah, and I have a few things I, I want to just throw out as a last thing to kind of get your, your thoughts on. So part of how I have always seen metabolism is I've always seen it more as a stress barometer, right? Mm. It's sort of like this sensing and responding apparatus. And so from that perspective, I've always thought like, you know, the, the wider the gap gets between intake and output of calories, that becomes a stress to that or a pressure building up on that stress mm -hmm. barometer. And then of course, the metabolism's whole job is to kind of get us back to homeostasis and take internal signals from the cells and external signals from the environment and plot a response. And so if that response is then getting us back to homeostasis, is there a way to essentially begin to say, and I think this is what you were just speaking to, the idea of what is then psychological stress doing to what, right. when does exercise become a stress to this stress barometer? When does, what is the point that under eating becomes a stress to this barometer? How much of it is this measuring of this gap between intake and output and the wider that gap gets, the more of a, a negative response we get and the, the more narrow we keep that gap, perhaps that we are not getting as, as much of a response, but I'm interested in all of this. And it's people like your work uh, that is, you know, helping me sort of understand this. But I wonder if you have sort of any thoughts on that sort of model as just metabolism as stress barometer. And if we're going to be looking at it, like then we can go into, all right, then what is our social connection telling us? Yeah. What is our over-exercising or under-exercising? Both can be a stress. What is overeating and under-eating? Both can be a stress. Sleep deprivation, like in a sense, all of these things are playing into this. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a really nice way to think about it. Um, and what, I, what that gets at, which I think is crucial, is understanding that your metabolism is responding to you. Mm. You're not pushing it or you, know, you, know, you don't push it around. It's behind the scenes adapting to you in ways that are hard to, to pay attention to and hard to keep track of. Um, and so and it, and it's what is your metabolism? It's all your body's cells at work, right? Mm. And it's all your body juggling its energy allocation to different tasks and, and responding. And so when we think about it that way, that kind of um, holistic evolutionary kind of perspective, I think that that gets us a lot further towards then asking those questions. Okay, well, now what if I add psychological stress to this? What if I add, because you're now you're not asking this sort of just in this sort of layered, you know, grocery bill way. What if I add this and this and this and this? What's my bill at the end of the day? Mm. Now you're asking in this responsive, flexible, dynamic system, if I poke it here, how does that move? And if I poke it here, how does that move? Right. And you're, you're asking about response and, and, um, and, and compensation. That's the way we should be thinking about this. I think that's the interesting next, uh, maybe, maybe a better paradigm for thinking about how exercise and other lifestyle factors all fit together. Mm. I, um, I just have to say, uh, to thank you so much for your work and also thank you for taking the time. It is so rare that we <laughs> get an expert like you to show up and actually sort of set us straight. Um, make sure you check out Dr. Ponzer's book, Burn. It's, uh, if you're, if you were interested in this discussion, it goes through all of this in a, in a more simple and elegant way, I think, because, you know, having me in the discussion, I think I can kind of botch things up a little bit, but the book is absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your work. Where can people, if they want to keep up with your, your work, besides living on PubMed and stuff like that, are you right. active in, on any social media, Twitter, Instagram, anything like that? And where can people keep up with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter. So check me out there at Herman Ponser. Um, I have a little bit of Instagram 
time, but I, I you know, not enough, I guess. And I've been uh, tagging so you are, a lot. I've been tagging you a lot lately, man. Just so you know, <laughs> I got to get back on there. I, uh, you know, it's sort of trying to find enough time in the day to, because it's so fun, you know, you can spend yeah. the, your day on that stuff. So I try to be good, but, uh, mostly I'm mostly on Twitter actually, but, uh, but yeah, please check us out. The lab website, we try to keep up to date if you want to check us out here at Duke. Mm-hmm. And then one thing I'd also say is, you know, if you want to keep track of what's going on with the Hadza, and particularly if you want to maybe even help them out because they could use your support, uh, we run a, a group called Hadza Fund, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D.org. And it's our way of, of supporting that community that's given us so much and that we work with so closely and have these deep friendships with. And it's our way of giving back. So, um, it also talks about the work we do there and a little bit about their culture. So it's a nice thing to that. check out if you're interested. Hadzafund.org. Yes. I will definitely be checking that out. Dr. Ponzer, thank you for your work. Uh, I'll be keeping up with you and hopefully we can have you again uh, sometime in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, great conversation.